everybody. Welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sackmissom. Chris, how are you this evening? I'm very well, David. Very well, thank you. Well, I have seen nature in all of its glory. I went to the gas station to retrieve beverages, and when I returned home, a possum was on my porch. Uh, so that's Oklahoma for you, I guess. Wanting to share the beverages. Exactly. They scurried away before I could talk to them or you know, give them some cat food or something like that. But um, yeah, no, it was, uh, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, possums are weird. <laughs> possums look like <laughs> astronauts from another dimension, you know? They do. They look like astronauts that have gotten too close to an event horizon and it's inverted all of their skin. <laughs> but yeah. um, Chris, where would you like to start off this particular episode? Uh, we're not going to be talking about possums the whole time, I hope. Um, you have any ideas? Yeah, I do. I wanted to pick up on uh, the, your closing remarks to our last episode. We were talking about, uh, well, sickness at large, but certainly mental uh, issues, where uh, it, it made me think of uh, a, a well-known remark by Ian Fleming that I like. Uh, the first time is happenstance. The second time is coincidence. And the third time is enemy action. Uh, and I really like that kind of paranoia and suggestiveness in that remark. He's obviously talking about a kind of military intelligence frame. But uh, it got me thinking about um, mental illness. And, um, you know, one of the odd things about it is that if you do a linguistic analysis, the terms mental illness and mental health are almost directly interchangeable. We're, we're always talking about psychological or psych psychiatric problems, but we don't seem as a culture to be able to decide if we're going to talk about it in the positive or the negative. And then I went back to, uh, we, you know, we've been talking about Gregory Bateson, is well-known from an anthropology standpoint, but he also did a, some really important work in, in mental health, in, in the, particularly in the area of schizophrenia. And uh, he had a, a, a comment which I thought was interesting, that we don't see many Napoleons in uh, mental institutions or psych wards anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they were very common. And that got me thinking that uh, Napoleon was obsessed with a red man, L'Homme Rouge, which he hallucinated uh, haunting the Tuileries. Um, and that got me thinking of Thomas de Quincey, who was obsessed with a crocodile, kind of rather like Captain Hook. And then I went back to uh, August Strindberg, one of my favorite writers, um, you know, one of the inventors of, of modern drama. And people may be familiar with it's a book packaged by Penguin. It's two works of his together, Inferno and The Occult Diary. And here is this great genius, uh, Scandinavian, but he's living in Paris during a complete psychotic break. And he narrates how he's tormented by infernal electricians who are beaming rays through the wall uh, in the employ of some unknown agent. 
mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. of course, electricity was kind of new then. But, I mean, here are people, you know, De Quincey and Strindberg, you know, we know that artists can be volatile, and we know that there are problems with, with mental health sometimes. But here, this obviously shows that intelligence has nothing to do with these internal miswirings, you know, with the electrician analogy, um, that I find really fascinating, you know, of how somehow intelligence in this case is sabotaging the individual. So I I thought I'd kick off on that note, following up on your closing comments to our last episode. So there's a lot in there that I really like. The first thing that I picked up was one of the first things that you said, which is the equation, uh, the equating rather of mental health and mental illness. So when we're normally talking about things like mental health, I feel from my experience reading uh, things on the internet, whether that's Twitter or articles or what have you, mental health is sort of a dog whistle for these different mental ailments, which are usually anxiety and depression. Exactly, yes. There's something very interesting going on where mental health is linguistically being equated with the illness that it is trying to rid itself of. And I think that's that's an interesting linguistic trick. It's an interesting semantical trick, right? Because mental health, could, could we look at mental health in a different way as health maybe necessarily including some of these illnesses and learning how to work with them? Or perhaps uh, in the case of some of these things, never having them at all. Uh, but the relationship of health to illness is very kind of curious to me because you can take that into the realm of people's physical health. You know, we don't normally think of becoming physically fit in terms of the illnesses that you're going to combat by doing that, which you 100% will. If you become physically fit, you become stronger, uh, more muscular, you are necessarily going to have less problems with things like heart disease, um, you know, hypertension, diabetes, um, and here's the tricky part, you will have less depression, anxiety, and schizoaffective disorders as well. So there's an interesting separation from that when it's the physical health versus physical illness, and those two things are more clearly linked with the mental aspect. What do you think Uh, about that? Well, I think there's some really interesting points. Let's try to break that down. One of the uh, further inquiry suggestions for further reading uh, for this program is a very influential book called The Myth of Mental Illness by a psychiatrist named Thomas Zatz, S-Z-A-Z. And one of his great complaints addresses the first issue that you point out, this, this schism, to, uh, to use you know, one of Bateson's key terms, between how we deal with mental illnesses versus how we deal with physical illnesses. And he says there's there's absolutely no connection. We cannot deal with mental issues in the same uh, sense of pathology that we use for physical ones. So I think there's a fundamental problem culturally that we have with that. I mean, it's, it permeates uh, both psychology and psychiatry, but I think it permeates popular opinion that way too. We're not really sure about 
mental fitness relative to physical fitness. We can always talk about physical fitness, right? Uh, no one has any problems with that. Even if we don't follow that, those good regimens and advice, we, we still know what we're talking about. But the other thing that I thought was interesting about what you're saying, and this is a real problem at, well, say at the parental level, what constitutes mental health that still has some of these strange behaviors and, and peccadilloes. You know, for instance, a child can have an imaginary friend and no one really freaks out. Whereas if an adult has an imaginary friend, uh, that's a little bit, you know, depending on how that works, that's a little strange, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, writers have a whole bunch of imaginary friends, uh, very you true. know. Very true. It, it, it's very So we don't have an idea, we don't have a consensus uh, schema in our culture for the extent to which mental health can incorporate some of these divergent behaviors and ideas, which I think is a real, again, it, it says something about the weakness and the confusion that we bring to the idea of, is it mental health or is it mental illness? You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're never going to get anywhere with, with that sort of problem. Um, but the other thing that I like is, you know, being open about talking about the physical connection of what we can do to increase our psychic immunity in the way that we address our physical immunity. I mean, you don't talk about being physically healthy in terms of a long inventory of all the diseases that you might avoid. Those kind of go without saying, you know. Oh, that's um, very interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. and but our major problems, and this is absolutely statistically true. I was just talking to my psychotherapist friend who, you know, it. it 90% of what a psychologist, your garden variety psychologist is dealing with, anxiety, depression, and disassociation, a sense of mm -hmm. alienation, uh, isolation, loneliness, that, that's kind of how that decodes. So there are physical things that we can do in terms of behaviors, physical fitness, diet. I know that you're very, uh, I think we're gonna get into some dietary sort of issues, but all these things are so fundamental to improving our psychic well-being, and maybe well-being is the better way to deal with the, the health uh, illness schism, you know? Yeah, perhaps. I think that that brings me to something else that you had said earlier, um, that I think it's very important to bring some trouble to, which is the idea of a mental illness being a case where the wiring goes wrong in a person's brain. This has been the dominant idea in modern psychotherapy as, for as far as I can know. That's why we have things like antidepressants, you know, SSRIs, things like that. So the trouble with this for me is that it goes back to the idea of a human's mind, we'll just use that term very loosely, uh, being a machine. This goes back to Descartes, I think, therefore I am, this kind of clock universe that we're all in, this mechanistic, materialistic world that we're in where something either works or it doesn't. I ordered a, a diffuser for nice smells off of Amazon. It came in, it didn't work, so I returned it and I got one that did work. 
And the trick is, is that we begin to think of human beings as being very similar to these machines that we are constantly surrounded by. And I want to trouble that a little bit because, and, and I think what you were saying right before I started talking really helps that because I think that it's better to think about a human being within its environment. It's not necessarily that I'm getting too much of this chemical or that chemical, not to dismiss chemicals out of hand, um, but it's, I would think it's less that I'm getting too much of this or that, but what environment am I in? I was reading a book called Irresistible by Adam Alter, and it's about people's relationship to technology, their addiction to things like cell phones, games, things like that. And he tells this fascinating story about Steve Jobs, the famous, you know, CEO of, of uh, Mac, right? I don't know what you would call him, the guru, <laughs> the turtleneck wearer. Um, <laughs> they, he, tell, he relates this very interesting story about how his, his biographer is following him around. And it's the launch of one of the iPads. And the interviewer says kind of offhand, your kids must be very excited for this product. This is after Jobs just got done hyping up an audience of 500 people about how awesome the iPad is. And Jobs turns to his interviewer and says, yeah, oh, they are not yeah. allowed to have an iPad. <laughs> there all. you go. Um, right? So, so two, two things could be going on. So what I think Alter does that is necessary but not sufficient is that he is looking at this from a neurochemical perspective. He's saying when you look at a, at a screen and you're pressing buttons, you're getting hits of dopamine. And they've done studies on rats um, where the rats keep going back to the, to the dopamine uh, instead of having sex or eating or whatever. Um, they've done tons of these studies, right? Here's how I would trouble this idea of dopamine a, or a neurochemical imbalance as the problem with your phone. Think about the rats again. The rats are going to the dopamine before anything else, but where are the rats in this setting? Okay. Yes. They're in a cage. They're in a cage. They're in a cage in a laboratory somewhere. So this is where the trouble comes in, I believe. And I think that this is a necessary extra component to what we're talking about. Can we measure the amounts of dopamine that are being delivered to our brains over a period of time? Yes, of course. We do it on rats all the time. Sometimes maybe we even do it to human beings. But isn't it troublesome that all of these experiments take place in a sterile white laboratory with rats that are kept in cages for their entire life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a problem fundamental there? problem of science. I mean, it's really the observational dilemma. Uh, that the context in which all of the research is done is effectively completely artificial. And it really has within it, mm -hmm. uh, as with any research, I mean, it's very difficult to not predetermine what results you're going to get. I mean, this is one of the great disciplines of science to actually mm -hmm. create experiments and research studies that are genuinely open-ended inquiries and that have within them methodologies and processes that defend against uh, a natural bias, uh, whether that be a personal bias of, of the people involved, or much more likely structural problems with the nature of the information gathering that gives you back 
information in a certain form, you know, when it's what you're really looking for is some open-ended right. uh, process of inquiry. Very, very, I mean, that's one of the great disciplines of science, which is very, very, very difficult to follow up on. And I don't think that's being taught in the same way that, it, that it used to be. Um, but, you know, one of the issues, if we go back to building on, on your first level of critique, which is really a very gigantic cultural critique, not just against Cartesian dualism, but an extended, the, the mechanistic, scientific, materialist, positivist, deterministic uh, paradigm that permeates all of the sciences. Uh, and we're really still trapped in, in the 19th century where that reached its sort of pinnacle of achievement. And we're struggling very hard, even with the theory of relativity, both of them, uh, quantum mechanics, breaking three, free of, of that old Newtonian materialist uh, idea of the world. But in terms of, of how we treat human beings in any of the life sciences or the social sciences, we're, we're still really, really stuck in that. Um, and so we get an idea of, I mean, for a lot of people, I think, you know, psychiatry, which should be an enormously interesting field, bringing together cognitive studies, neuroscience, you know, it, it often comes down to pharmacology, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's really weird. It does, yeah. But it, that's, that's the big issue. You know, and this that's is why, another reason why I encourage people to go back to Bateson, you know, who started off as an anthropologist. That's what I was originally interested in. He worked in New Guinea and, and Bali. But he, he did some very, very intense time working with schizophrenics in a clinical situation. So he has a, an enormous background in that, that world. And his whole approach to that was to step away entirely from the genetic influenced metabolic neurochemical side to look at schizophrenia in terms of it being a pattern of thought and behavior that is inculcated by defective family dynamics and in the form of the famous double bind where an individual in a family is given a constant no-win situation you know, so this is not a mixed signal thing. It's much more insidious than that. Um, and I think that's a fascinating, very social and humanist way of looking at, you know, perhaps the most serious common uh, mental illness problem of schizophrenia. You know, I think we all know somebody in that world. We've talked yeah. about the schizophrenic homeless people right. that, we're, that we're surrounded by. But don't you think that's interesting to take that radical position of saying, wait a minute, this has a lot to do with human interaction, not what's in the nerves and the, the genes. <clears throat> yes, because that goes back to my point about the rat in the cage. The problem isn't the dopamine. The problem is that the rat is in a cage to begin with. So if you apply that to human beings, is it the fact that you're a little bit low on dopamine? Is that why you're depressed? Or are you in a cage right now? Um, what is your relationship to your familial groups, to your friend groups, to the outside world, to nature? Um, are you going from box to box to box to box? You're in the box of your home and then you wake up before the sun comes up and you get into the box that is your car 
that, by the way, is poisoning you with carbon monoxide the whole time you're in it. Drive to work, you're in another box for a long period of time. And then if it's winter, when you get out of work, it's dark again, and you go back to your other box. So maybe it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, but you know, if you're going from box to box and you're not interacting with other people, you have no sense of being part of a system that actually matters. You know, I can't remember where I read this, but it was a book or a paper or an essay, something like that, that was talking about the major problem with modern life is that people never get to see the fruits of their labor. So if you go to a job that is, you know, you're a daddy, a, a daddy, a data entry specialist at, say, Google or something, you're putting in a bunch of code, but you don't actually see the physical manifestation of what it is that you're doing, right? So to bring back the rats for another metaphor, you're just on a wheel, you know? So you go from cage to cage to cage, and then you're on a wheel. And then we want to say, you know what? We know what's wrong with you. It's You have an imbalance of chemicals. So just take these pills and you'll be completely fine with this lifestyle of moving from box to box to box. And what I'm suggesting is that the boxes are the problem. Not I, the I couldn't boxes. agree more with that. I mean, I, my whole approach really is to say that I think we need to overhaul psychology and psychiatry entirely and, and substitute a new anthropological approach that looks at all of these issues within a cultural context uh, not just a so social seems a little bit soft a word. Uh, I think cultural is, is, is the bigger idea and the deeper idea. And if you look at traditional indigenous uh, cultures or people who would fall under that rubric, I mean, this is no news to them. You know, this is absolutely no news to them. And this gets back to the issues of magic and language. I mean, we, we know that there are forms of therapy, the talking therapies, uh, whether that be Freud or Jungian therapy or transactional analysis or neuro-linguistic programming. There's a very strong focus on language. Well, language is obviously a, a completely shared and uh, communally informing force. So you can't treat an individual in terms of their personal language. You are dealing with them in de facto terms culturally. So look, I'm I'm completely down with that. Mm -hmm. But I want to um, I want to just then uh, you know you're, you're talking about rats and boxes, which are be you know beautiful behaviorist uh, metaphors, and they're not unfortunately metaphors. Behaviorism is kind of the the life science version of that. Uh, mechanistic uh, philosophy that we think of in terms of, of say, physics. But I want to look at the idea of, of, of boxes and, and rats and cages applied to humans. It would seem that the common sense idea is that we would be trying to get out of our cages and our boxes. And many people would claim that they are desperate to do so. And yet, the behavior that we see, and social media has given us such a great window into the collective unconscious uh, that Jung introduced as an idea, it seems like there are an awful lot of people today who are 
relentlessly trying to stay in their boxes and cages and you're actually mm. kind of mm-hmm. glad to be sick um you know yeah this is one of my most unpopular ideas <laughs> i'm glad we're talking about it on the podcast but the the idea i brought this up on rune soup the idea of you know do people enjoy to a certain extent being sick in this way um it's a difficult question i think anybody to whom you you posited that who was actually suffering from depression anxiety you know uh, uh disassociative disorder would say i'm i absolutely do not enjoy those things but i'm not sure if that's the whole story i'm really not sure so what i would break it into is i would break it into the actual experience of the thing and then the story that you're able to tell yourself about the thing after it has run its course. So a person in the depths of a depressive episode or a manic episode, uh, well, this might not be so, we'll just use depressive for this one, but a person in the depths of a depressive episode does not enjoy that. I have been there to the point of being suicidal and I can promise you that it is not fun. I was not sitting there thinking to myself, oh wow, I'm having a great time wanting to die. Right. Oh. You know what I mean? That's that's just not the case. However, we have to we have to realize that human beings are not ever uh, permanently in one state or the other. So what does a depressive state do to a person who has come out of the episode and is now able to narrativize that episode in a certain way? There's something well, there. you know, there there is absolutely, and I, I I would you sort of introduced two points. There's there's the or two stages. There is the 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 discomfort, perhaps even pain, uh, on some level, whether that be uh, emotional, psychological, or or physical. And then there's the the narrative or story one tells oneself about that. But human beings being storytelling creatures, we never stop with the story to ourselves. We tell it to other people. And I think that's where some Correct. leverage and some benefit comes back. Uh, Eric Byrne, who wrote you know, The Games People Play, talks about the wooden leg game, which exactly relates to this, about how using disease, distress, discomfort – can be a way of gaining attention. Everybody knows that. Um, my uh, when I was growing up, I just thought of this. Uh, my aunt was uh, she had a very high fever as a child, and she was somewhat simple-minded, but a wonderful soul. And I, I wrote about her in my book Sea Monkeys. She was really a kind of saint. But uh, her second husband was a guy named Floyd. And Floyd had fallen off a construction derrick and broken his back and had a lifetime payout. But Floyd had the biggest ears I've ever seen. They were always suntanned, always suntanned (laughs) ears. And every Christmas he would come over to my father's house and my stepbrother and I could time it because he would always choke on an ice cube. Why and when? Because he wanted attention. 
he was not getting enough attention around the dinner table. And so the old technique of choking on the ice cube would come up. I just remember this. And it was just hilarious. We could predict it. And I think that there, so one of the ideas of staying in your box and staying in your cage and having a diagnosis, there's a wonderful expression, um, you know, being grateful for the diagnosis. Because once you have a label, then it's official. You know, you're not just feeling down or blue or even suicidal. No, you've got clinical depression. And that's important to have that diagnosis. But then I think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. human nature having a degree of perversity inherent in it, I think people choose to subconsciously, if nothing else, I mean, Freud, Freud said this, that it's a way of negotiating attention, status, some support from the network, the family, friends, employees that you otherwise wouldn't get. I mean, doesn't that sort of ring a little bit true? Doesn't that kind of connect with what you're saying? Of course. It goes back to this idea that we have right now of victim culture, which I think um, has been vastly overstated by our more conservative friends um, and vastly understated by our more liberal progressive friends. Um, so on one side, you have people... Uh, saying that this shit is all in your head, it's not real, and you're doing this strictly for attention, which, by the way, I know Absolutely, not yes. I want to be clear about um, that now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then on the other side, you have people who say it is absolutely never a cry for, for attention. It's never self-interested. It is always a function of, you know, the wiring being wrong or the, the neurochemical processes being incorrect. And I think that's wrong as well. I think as is usual with these kind of things, we have to fuse these things together because in our correspondence, you, you brought up something very interesting, which is the, the, the nature of agency with victims, people who are suffering from these de depressive states and I don't want to steal your thunder on this. So you want to talk about that just a little bit? Like, how does agency fit into all oh, this? Oh, I think it's terribly it important? important. I think the problem is it, it doesn't fit in in any sort of obvious common sense way. If you're going to – let's take the extreme situation of using any kind of distress, disadvantage, anything that might – fall under the rubric of victimization or victimhood, uh, however fair or unfair that is. But say from the personal perspective, it is legitimate. It's been crafted as and processed as a state that that, that individual is dealing with. Uh, it, it isn't at all clear to me how you then turn that into uh, some capacity for agency uh, Except with, uh, you know, choking on an ice cube and 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 calling attention to that, getting it, right. getting some extra support or acknowledgement or validation of your victimization from other people. But I think this is exactly the problem that we see on so many levels. That that uh, whether it be a mental health issue or a socio-political economic issue. I, 
I, I don't think that, that victimization translates into any clear sense of uh, a healthy and positive sense of agency, um, at least not by my definitions, because one of the things that I would say is agency means that you're able to help other people, you know, not just able to look after yourself. I mean, if I'm thinking that, oh, David has agency, well, that means, you know, he might be able to help me move some furniture, you know, uh, right. Correct, which I can, by the way. But, I you know, that, that basic sense of being <laughs> able to help and look after other people, not just being able to hold yourself together, uh, which is kind of a pretty, you know, setting the bar pretty low, I think, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I um, there's a there's a personal story about this. Uh, I was talking to my mother recently. My mother, I'm going to talk about saints. She's one of them. She's always looking to help people. And she, a former student of hers, so she's an elementary school teacher. Now she teaches special ed in one of the worst neighborhoods in one of the most crime-ridden cities in Oklahoma, the place that I grew up in, Lawton. And her student became pregnant very young. Um, I think she was 14 when she became pregnant. Um, so my mother will do things like buy baby clothes, help out with food for the family, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the family that she's helping out is very interesting. So there is the, the, the mother, the daughter, who is now also a mother, the child, a mentally handicapped brother, a ex-husband to the mother, right? The older mother, not the younger mother, and the father of, of, of the child, right? So the father of the child doesn't work because he keeps getting fired for this, that, or the other. Right. This is classic Oklahoma stuff, right? Like this is, a por this is a portrait of an Oklahoma family. So they live in this little house in this small neighborhood, um, and the mother is essentially tapped out financially after she pays her mortgage and pays the bills, et cetera, et cetera. Now, her ex-husband, who lives with them and who refuses to move out, gets disability for an injury. And this is going to tie back into what we're talking about. So he really had an injury. He really had a physical in injury. I don't know what it was. I can't remember at the moment. So he gets a certain amount of money every month for this. Now, this man refuses to move out, but he also refuses to pay any of the bills with his disability check. So he's dead weight, essentially. And of course, this frustrates my mother to no end because she's thinking, you know, why am I buying groceries for this family where the answer is very clear, like the money exists. I don't know what this man is spending his money on. But let's look at this guy for just a second. This is a person who did have a real injury, going back to the mental aspect. You might have a real mental, like a psychotic break or something to that effect. Those things do exist and should be addressed seriously because they are real. However, so how is this guy dealing with the aftermath of his injury? Well, he's using it to collect his check, bully people around him, and live however the hell he wants to while other people around him suffer. Again, apply that to a mental health situation. Nobody's blaming anybody here for having genuine mental 
health issues, mental problems, psychotic breaks, things of that nature. But we can see in the aftermath with some people, some, not all, that it's being used. It's, it's, it's a means to an end at a certain point. And that's where it gets really difficult because you bring this up to people and they, they relate. They immediately go into on the defensive, which is natural. It's human. But they go back to that moment of their actual, you know, psychotic break. Or in this guy's case, you know, maybe he hurt his back or something like that. You know, he goes back to that and he re-experiences that pain. And he says, oh, you're not going to tell me that I'm milking this. That was a horrific experience that I went to. And he's reliving it in a sense. But the key with people like this is to say, okay, I, I believe you. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. But what are you doing now? Well, I think that is the, the absolute essential thing of being able to look for positive, proactive healing strategies but, you know, you mentioned a word that just it just happened to be uh, something that crossed my mind uh, earlier today, which kind of has within it uh, a lot of these issues. Uh, aftermath was the word. Aftermath is very interesting. It, on the one hand, it, it suggests negative consequences, uh, the bad wash up of, of an event. Uh, purely negative connotations, really. And yet, its original meaning was new grass, new grass after mowing. You know, it comes from the German word mod, M-A-H-D, mowing. So it has two entirely different, it, on the one hand, it's, oh, yeah. wow, the, the, it's the tsunami after the earthquake. And on the other hand, it's this new growth, this new potential, looking forward to something. And I think that is what we are trying to find, well, hopefully in our own lives, but certainly with, with anyone who is in, in, in distress or suffering. I mean, we naturally have empathy for that, but we do want to see an attempt to break out of that cage or box of victimization and to, to try, be trying to make that escape. You know, I, I think that's what we admire to someone who who wants to escape. Uh, I think that, you know, we might um, right. want to. I mean, one of the things that 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 has inspired me about your experience in, in mm -hmm. recent times mm -hmm. is um, your embrace not only of, of bodybuilding, but also a change in diet. And I think diet is something we, we need to think of in broader terms than just food, not that food and, and uh, liquid isn't very important, obviously mm -hmm. it is, but diet in that bigger sense of, of ideas, uh, what we're reading, what we're listening to, that broader sense. I mean, I don't know, I, I think people would be interested mm -hmm. to hear something of, of your journey in that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I started off when I was in my mid-20s or so, uh, Rios and I, who we are, you know, back together again, but we split up and that was a traumatic experience for me that set me on a really bad path. And I want to, you know, tag that in keeping with what we're talking about now as a perfect example of what we're talking of, of the, our whole idea here, which is that that was a traumatic event, but the things that followed that for the longest time I blamed on that traumatic event were actually my doing entirely. So I moved out and I began to hang out with my friends who were involved um, in 
essentially buying research chemicals from China on the Silk Road <laughs> and selling those research chemicals to tweakers. Now, this was actually not technically illegal, what they were doing. So they were they were <laughs> they were finding they were finding chemically analogous um, uh, compounds. So instead of MDMA, which I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, that's ecstasy. Instead of buying that, which would have gotten you flagged immediately by Homeland Security, uh, they were buying things like MDMC. So there are all these different chemical compounds. There's like 2,4A, 2CI, 2CB. 2CB is like an ecstasy that's mixed with a hallucinogenic. So you trip out and it gets very speedy. And you can only ever take one. If you take two, you'll probably die, right? Um, so we're buying these like very dangerous chemicals. At one point, we got a mix-up on the order, and we were supposed to be ordering... Um, I can't remember what it was, but they mixed up the order. They sent us the wrong thing, and we took you know 50 times the dose of this thing that we were you know, thought was something else. And we all stayed up for five days. People lost their jobs. We, you know, put blankets over the windows of the house that we were in, et cetera, et cetera. It was a, it was a very scary time. Um, I'm normally the first one to freak out on a bad trip, but in this one case, for some reason, I was the only person who was holding everything together. It was probably because even though I'd been awake for five days, I, I felt great the whole time. You know, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Um, so that moment, I think, and the come down from that especially, made me realize, okay, I have to get my life together. Um, so I began reconnecting with Rios, at first in very kind of pathetic and sad ways, and then gradually in more, I think, respectable ways. Like, so we're talking, starting off texting texting drunk at, at midnight, you know, take me back, take me back, very embarrassing stuff. But then slowly sobering up and, and talking to her as a person and, you know, deciding that we're going to, to sort of reconnect and try this again. So I became obsessed with things like mental health because in this time when I was, you know, doing all these drugs and sleeping in my car and hanging out with um, very unsavory people, I was obviously wildly unhealthy. I was probably, I don't know, maybe 130 pounds or something like that. I was very small, very skinny. Um, and at a certain point, I became really interested in bodybuilding. And so I started doing that. Uh, this is actually really funny. The first two times I ever went to the gym, I was drunk. I actually was, was about eight beers in and I just went to the gym and did what I could and felt like I was going to throw up. And then I went home. Oh dear. Yeah. And then the third time, uh, this was a planet fitness, but I, so planet fitness is very purple. Every like their theme is, is purple. I, I, I took a, I took a bunch of mushrooms and then went to planet fitness <laughs> and had this bizarre experience where I was, you know, I was lifting, um, not dumbbells, but I was on, I was on what's called a Smith machine, which is like a bench press, but the, the, the bar itself is connected into this sort of, you know, pneumatic, uh, you know, sort of tube thing so that you can't, you can't hurt yourself on it. 
but I was lifting that and I was, I could feel every fiber of my muscles, you know, as I was doing that. And I had the very common, you know, mushroom experience of feeling connected, but I, if, it, it was the first time that I felt like I was inside my body, all the drugs and sex and, you know, and hanging out with friends and things like that, they, they all took me sort of outside my body, if that makes sense. They, it took me to a different place where I didn't have to confront anything. But this mushroom experience at the gym put me deep inside my body and deep inside physical pain. I was feeling physical pain, obviously, as I'm lifting these, at the time, for me, heavy weights. And I became a little bit obsessed with that. And so I started lifting regularly. And I think that is the single most important thing for yeah. my development from that. Uh, I mean, you probably knew me at this point. You can vouch for this. I was definitely not a big guy um, uh, from that to where I am now. But more importantly, more important than the physical aspect is, is the mental aspect, right? So I, I became sort of obsessed with this idea that bad things do happen to people um, and those things should be acknowledged and, and worked out through different sorts of therapy and, and what have you, but that, but that there's a second thing and there's, there's a person who is not currently experiencing the trauma who has to figure out how to live in the world separate from these things that have happened to them. And so I thought that, okay, so that guy is going to work out a lot. And whenever the other guy comes back, who's, you know, sort of reliving these various traumas. I didn't even get into a quarter of, of the traumas, right? So the guy who's reliving that, like, we will deal with that as it comes, but focus yeah. on lifting the weight. Just keep lifting the weight. And, uh, yeah, now I'm, now I'm big. <laughs> so, so, so there's, so there's that. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about with that, but I, I feel like I've been talking for too long, so I'll, I'll Hand, hand the mic over to you, so to speak. Well, could we agree that, that kind of one of the, the core themes here and perhaps to the series overall is to, to try to break down that binary, uh, the great, you know, Cartesian one of, of mind, body, ghost versus the machine. I mean, stop and think about it for a moment. Who is really imposing that dichotomy or that binary on us. I mean, culture, Western culture may be to some extent, but insofar as we do have any kind of an individual life, there's really no pressure on that to, to divide between the mental and the physical. And anyone who's done anything serious physically knows that the mental discipline, stick-to-itiveness, perseverance, and, you know, courage actually has, you know, a real impact in it. Um, you know, we were thinking about those uh, two guys who recently trekked solo, not together, uh, but they did it, you know, in the same time uh, across Antarctica. And uh, one was uh, an older guy, sort of near my age. One was a younger guy nearer your age. And they, they talked about, you know, the physical training that they went through to survive I mean, Antarctica, I mean, it's insane. I've been on a couple of, of effectively beaches there, hanging out with emperor penguins. And the idea of crossing that amazing landmass 
is just beyond comprehension. But they make a very fundamental point that, and, and this is, if there's anywhere on planet Earth that is a psychological place as much as a physical place, Antarctica certainly qualifies. And their training had so much to do with the mental discipline, dealing with the isolation, the, the loneliness, the stress, Talk about anxiety and depression. I mean, when your electrolytes just go nowhere and you're, you're, you're bottomed out of basic things like potassium and sodium, you've got a psychological problem there. There is no division between mind and body. You know, that's an illusion. That is an illusion that you really need to get past if you're going to have any mental or physical health thereafter. So I think we're talking about that connection, uh, you know, between mind and body is a fundamental theme. But then I just, I, you know, when you're talking about the gym and being on mushrooms, I sudden, I just couldn't get out of my head for some reason. Uh, ben Stiller doing a comedy routine based on that. And uh, I think mm -hmm. he's kind of a bodybuilding sort of guy. And but I can. Oh, yeah. People don't know about this, but Ben Stiller is pretty buff. He's pretty buff. I, I could see him doing playing David in in a, in a sketch, at least, where David's on shrooms in this mirrored, you know, gym with all these bodies uh -huh. and these weird <laughs> machines. And it would be kind of a Buster Keaton comedy thing, but also something that would because everybody's had some moments in, in gyms. And this, you know, I think a lot of people uh, are afraid of gyms, not because of, of being ashamed of their body or, or connection with other people so much and, and not because of COVID-19 now, but because they, they don't know how to work the machines you know, mm, and you think, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. look, you know, I don't know if I want to ask for help here, you know, so there's that whole mm. thing. But thinking about the mirrors, because mirrors are a part of that, I, I wonder if we could, you know, this idea of take the word consciousness or, you know, being conscience, conscious and how fundamental that is to human experience. I mean, that's the whole ball game right there, right? True. Now, now just do a slight substitution. I do a lot of word substitutions in my teaching. Now think about self-consciousness. Now, either that's an entirely redundant idea that goes without saying, or it changes the field around that idea completely. Conscious mm -hmm. and consciousness is good. Self-consciousness is not good. That's a that's an uncomfortable situation, isn't it? And we were talking in last episode about dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, whether it's Morgellons or you know the great shrinking penis uh, diseases that go around the world. We had to ha we had to harken back to that. If, if people haven't listened to the last episode, we, we do talk about the culture bound syndromes. Of, of penis shrinkage uh, and, and what might be going it on. It all comes back to penis shrinkage, doesn't it? it? It's just, it's hard to get around that. Um, <laughs> but this then self-consciousness to the gym, I was thinking about the mirror test. Uh, I, I think listeners would be familiar with this. This is a very, very strange and just absolutely human uh, idea of trying to assess the uh, the self-awareness uh and and 
by that we mean sentience of, of other animals. So the idea is that, that we drug animals, knock them out, always got to do that, right? That sounds like the beginning of an experiment, doesn't it? And then we put like a red dot on their faces and present them with a mirror and we gauge whether or not they recognize themselves by engaging with that red dot. Well, you got to say that only humans, that we're the only animals on the planet who could have ever come up with something that twisted of an idea. But, I mean, here are some of the animals that pass the mirror test. Great apes, uh, which include us. One single Asiatic elephant. I would like to know more about that Asiatic, that one elephant. If any listeners want to follow up on that, I think Dave and I would both be very interested in tracking down what was going on there. Dolphins, orcas, and magpies, for instance. Here are some animals that fail the test, supposedly. Many, many kinds of monkeys, including uh, my favorite baboons. I, I have I've had a couple of mystical experiences with baboons, and I, I really, I, I think I just they stun me. Giant pandas. Uh, I'm sorry if people are panda fans. I think pandas are kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Uh, people may know they've had terrible <laughs> trouble reproducing. They're, they're sexually yeah, incompetent, yeah. and even panda porn, it, 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 that's actually helped. We think the panda birth problem may have been resolved, but they're really just sexual losers, and um, I, I, I think we should acknowledge <laughs> that. Uh, it's the takeaway from this episode that pandas I'm are I'm sorry, there's losers. just no polite way to put it. It's it, it's a it's a bad honeymoon night forever for them. You know, they're just not working it out. And uh, and also sea lions. And I I feel bad for sea I, I like sea lions. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah. think that, you know, maybe what they're thinking is, well, you know, hey, we don't want to be knocked out and have a red dot on our heads and by the way, we're also really big, and if you get close to us, we're going to really cause trouble. So, but what do you think about the mirror test as an idea, and maybe as a metaphor for what's wrong with people today? Maybe what that maybe when we're talking about this mental illness, mental health problem, is really a struggle with identity and and humans. Failing the mirror test. Right, because we have a completely different mirror. Well now, said. We? Well said. I Flesh mean, that out. So, yeah. So when you're looking at a reflective piece of glass to notice notice yourself in there, um, that's completely different now than what humans are, are dealing with. Um, it reminds me of something that Connor Habib once said, which is sitting with the idea that you will never truly see your face ever. You'll see a reflection of your face, but it's kind of impossible. I mean, you can see a video of your face. You can see your reflection, but you can't actually see your face. And I think that we also will never truly kind of, quote, see our face based on the new mirrors that we have today, which are things like social media, the Internet, um, the way that people perceive us. So imagine a mirror that reflects not your true image back to yourself, but reflects what other people see of you. 
That's the mirror that we're confronted with every day. And so I suppose it's really no surprise that we end up with all these mental hangups with things because our, our personal mirror test that we're doing to ourselves every single day is constantly coming into conflict with other people's interpretation of our own mirror test. And that's something that animals don't really have to deal with. They don't have to deal with, you know, their, you know, their brand or their self-image or how people see them online or things like that. You know, it's it's a completely different mirror. Right. That we're talking about. And just listeners may know that we've just had Fat Bear Week celebrated in Alaska, which is, yeah. Congratulations to the, the yeah. Earl of Avoir yeah. Dupois. Dupois? Yeah. Bear 747, very aptly uh, numbered there because that that was a big bear. You know, it's interesting what you're talking about, the the, the difference with the human mirror problem. And it gets well beyond, you know, body dysmorphia and and, in our perceptions of ourselves in any physical, literal terms, because you're really talking about a multitude of mirrors. Many, I mean, if we think of... Uh, I mean, one of the uh, the phrases in, in New Guinea about um, because mirrors were a huge introduction to them. You know, people who they are probably the greatest body art decorator people on the planet. Uh, just in a cla- in a category mm-hmm. all their own for the major sing sings. So, in you know, first exposure to Europeans and Asians with access to mirrors, mirrors became very very valuable you know, valued pieces of, of magic. Uh, and they have the expression of, of healing the mirror, you know, so it's a projected sympathetic magic approach, which I mm. think is quite, quite lovely. But our problem in, in developed nations context is our mirrors have multiplied beyond anything we can control. And so while we're always dealing with that inherent sense of distortion or misrepresentation that you mentioned, we are also getting this, you know, multiplying effect of the mirrors getting, if we try to fix one, well, there's another one and another one and another one and another one. And there's sort of an infinite regress that way. We can never catch up with all the mirrors. We can never heal them all, you know. Correct, correct. And that brings me back to, to, to some sort of practical tips, right? Like, let's get into practical tips here at the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, because we had a listener contact me and say that they were very interested to hear where we would go with this because they are currently, you know, suffering from, from mental health issues. And um, before I go further, neither Chris nor I are medical health, uh, mental health professionals, right? So... This is not medical advice. This is just some thoughts that we're having. Okay. Now, I think that the only way to deal with this plethora of mirrors that we're dealing with right now is to really kind of shut them out for a moment and focus on that one mirror, the the one that you can actually see. Okay. This goes back to bodybuilding. I think that people need to be focused on their own internal monologues and what they say to themselves 
Um, and I'll use an example. So I've become obsessed, I've told you about this, with this guy, David Goggins. Okay. Right. So yeah. David Goggins is a dude. He was 270 pounds, uh, was sitting on his couch one day and he decided that he was going to become the toughest dude who ever lived. And so he completed SEAL training, Army Ranger training, and whatever the Air Force's special force is called. I'm not sure. He did Hell Week three times, but he's telling this story. And when I heard this story, I was so inspired. I thought it was so great. And then I told it to my wife, and she said, that man sounds like a psychopath. Yes, (laughs) precisely. It's a fine line. (laughs) So basically, this guy uh, wants to run a 130-mile race through Death Valley in the summer. At this point, he's a bodybuilder. He's never run a race before, but he wants to do this thing for charity. So he contacts the organizer of the race and and says, what do I have to do to participate? The guy tells him, well, you have to prove to me that you can run 100 miles in 24 hours. So he says, okay, cool. I'll do that. So he goes to a track. He runs his first 70 miles. And when he's done, his shins are just destroyed. He's got shin splints that hurt like hell. Uh, His feet won't move. Like he can't wiggle his toes. He's pissing blood. And he, at one point, he, he shit himself, right? Oh, so he's, he's covered in his own, you know, just like, because the human body does give out at a certain point, you know, especially if you're not trained to do this kind of thing. But then he realized that he had about 12 hours left to finish that last 30 miles. So he taped his feet up and reached down inside himself, telling himself things like, this is not going to kill me. This can't hurt me. I'm going to complete this. And he finished it. Now, that does sound psychopathic. I get that. But for me, it brings up a very important point about self-talk and how, like how you talk to yourself on a daily basis. Do you wake up and think, oh, shit, I have so much stuff to do. Um, you know, I, I, I procrastinated. I'm so stupid. Why do I do this kind of thing? The shift that I would ask people to do, and our society is so irony poisoned and so averse to this like quote unquote corny behavior, wake up talking to yourself like you are the the baddest motherfucker who's ever lived, right? Just wake up and think like, I I can do anything that I want. None of this is going to kill me. You know, do I feel a little under the weather for this, that, or the other reason? That's fine. It's not going to kill me. I'm going to keep going. And really put yourself into this almost psychopathic mindset of being able to complete the things that you want to complete in a day. I really think that that's huge. I started doing that and it's night and day, you know, night and day from who I was even a few weeks ago. Um, and it requires uh, it requires a little bit of maybe maybe self deception, but um, people like Norman Vincent Peale and Neville Goddard uh, really kind of hit the nail on the head way back in the early twentieth century when they were talking about the power of positive thinking and the power of positive thought. I know that we we look you know kind of askance at it, but um, I think it works. Well, you know, you, you mentioned an interesting phrase, which I think is, is something that I, I want to call attention to, uh, because it applies so profoundly to, to our era. Um, 
really the last century, a great turning point in, in human culture. Your phrase was irony poisoned. You know, we, we can't get past, we need, we always need that, that distancing of irony, uh, that distancing of kind of tongue in cheek, of self-effacing, you know, humor, you know, that uh, there's a line, you know, a, a sort of, it's a gloss on Nietzsche's famous line, what doesn't destroy me disappoints others, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we can't, uh, we can't actually confront uh, positive thinking and, and issues of, I mean, think about how words like courage, bravery, and valor are almost always mentioned in, in, a, in a very literal military context, because we just don't feel comfortable with that in our own lives. You mean we have to be heroes? No, 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 we're not really here. You know, we, no one has that that courage to stand up and say, well, I'm going to try to be a hero. I may, I may not succeed, but I'm, I'm going to give it a go. And I think, you know, Buckminster Fuller, a great visionary in, in many ways, he has a beautiful line, which I think is, is so true to his, his very deeply humanist and uh, wise but almost childlike uh, sense. He said, dare to be naive and mm -hmm. dare to be inspired. You know, That's it. I mean, have the, you know, don't be so armored in irony and cynicism and I'm too cool for school, but really I'm just scared of, you know, the fact that I've got no guts and I need this armor and does this armor make me look fat? You know, you know, that, <laughs> that kind of problem, you know, it's, um, but so I, I really dig your suggestion and I think that you're living it. You're, you're walking it like you talk it because you, I mean, when I did meet you first, you know, in Portland, I mean, you were kind of a little sort of, you know, a little guy, you know, yeah, and, right. and now you're a bruiser and I think that's yep. really cool. Um, so let me compliment that with another approach for our, our the listener who, who um, was looking for some practical suggestions. I, and I believe in regards to depression, um, which is so uh, powerful and so um, distressing because often it's so shapeless and formless. Um, one of the things I've, I've found is to, to give form. I have a, a personal uh, principle which I call the law of conservation of calamity and, and being able to find form for the distressing, uh, ambiguous, shapeless, often sources of, of anxiety, confusion, or, or depression in my life. And uh, I think back to an old Johnny Quest episode. Uh, Oh man, and I believe this is the this is the, the favorite overall of the original series. It's called the Invisible Monster, where a scientist uh, an experiment goes wrong. Surprise, surprise, uh, and an energy beast is created and goes on the rampage. But the thing is, the beast can't be seen. So Doctor Quest and Race and Haji and Johnny get up on their jetpacks, their personal jetpacks, which we still don't have, and I've got a permanent, I think, complaint about that into the complaints department. I want my jetpack, but they get up in their jetpack, and what do they do? They paint bomb the energy beast. 
they make it visible. So what I would suggest to our listener is to adopt the very flexible art form of the collage, the radical, fragmentary, kaleidoscopic, mosaic form, which is perhaps the signature art form of our time. Uh, almost everything is a collage. Our, our, our very consciousness is kind of collaged. But take the time to physically manifest the beast, the monster, the entity, however you relate to the depression. But give it not just just personification in a conceptual sense. Give it a dimensionality. Triangulate it from you so it's not part of you. It's a separate creation that you're common. And then, I don't know, I found that when I do that in visual art terms, I do magically have some more power over it. I'm not saying it resolves it forever. You know, I'm not in any way saying that. I'm talking about a strategy of management and uh, detente, you know? Yeah, yeah. That reminds me very much of a book. I wasn't planning on talking about this book, but what you're saying is so close to this. Um, it's by Soltrim Alion. It's called Feeding Your Demons. And so this woman is a Buddhist monk, uh, one of the most kind of prominent uh, Buddhist speakers maybe in the world. Um, and the book Feeding Your Demons is about just that. So her read on it from her study of Tibetan Buddhism, I don't know what school, but you know, Tibetan Buddhism, is the idea that if you try to fight against your demons, you only make them stronger. If you try to suppress them or, or you know, uh, push them away or pretend they don't exist, they just get worse. So feeding your demons, in maybe the first or second chapter, she outlines this process where you sit in a chair across from uh, an empty chair, and in that chair with your mind, you imagine your particular demon, whether it's alcoholism, depression, anxiety, whatever, but you, you picture it. Cigarette addiction, nicotine addiction, right? You picture it sitting across from you and you really create kind of a tulpa in your mind, a thought form that becomes real. And then you begin to talk to it and you start asking it, what does it really want? And that process, magically, you begin to actually feed the demon with what it wants so that it doesn't manifest in your life as smoking a cigarette or, you know, going on a uh, a huge bender or whatever, um, that feeding keeps it at bay. Does that, that, that connects to what you're saying, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm, you know, and it, it's, it, it connects back to so much wisdom that it comes from so many quarters around the world and throughout history. I mean, it, it kind of connects directly pretty much to what Freud and Jung were saying in different sort of points of view. It connects back to the idea of, of counter magic that we've talked about in the past, of, of using what could be construed as a kind of, of mental illness, of engaging with your demons, of, of actually dialoguing with them. I mean, that could be considered quite strange from a Western point of view, but there are many cultures around the world for whom it would be the most obvious starting point. Of course you're going to be on, want to be on good terms with your demons. What are you mm -hmm. talking about? Yeah. You know? Correct. Correct. 
Correct. I mean, it's just it, 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 it's so funny what, what is completely obvious to certain cultures. And this gets mm-hmm. back to our idea that, that mental issues do need to be treated in terms of culture, not just this individual, you know, what's going on in the cage of our head. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't work because uh, there are more rats than just our brain inside our, our the cage of our skulls. You know, there's just. That's it's just not that simple. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that makes that makes beautiful sense. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that I try to do is uh, every day when I wake up this morning, it was 40 degrees outside. I, I drive. My Jesus. To yeah, it, was, it got cold. Uh, and I wake up and I turn my shower on ice cold and I take a shower. First thing I start my day off with the hardest thing that I'm going to do. And then after I drop her off, I go straight to the gym and lift heavy. And after that, the rest of the day is kind of cake. All the while I'm thinking like, this isn't going to kill me. Like, you're not going to kill me. You can't kill me. So, I mean, that's that kind of maybe psychotic mixture of two, um, of both the physical and the mental aspect of it. But you will see results within a few days. You know, and it'll only compound as you continue on through life. If you mix these kind of mental, spiritual, and physical practices together, you'll you'll keep these things that have tortured you for so long at bay. You know that that so uh, just echoes and resonates with um, was went back to Rilke's you know famous poem, perhaps his greatest poem. Love. Yeah, the, you know, on, on gazing at the archaic torso of Apollo. Um, and I, I just, I had to, uh, I had to sort of uh, look at it again. And I, I don't know if people, I, I'm sure many people are aware of it, but I, I'd like to read it just in closing yes. today because I, th- I think it's just one of the most beautiful statements that sort of encapsulates and embraces this whole gestalt that, that we've mm-hmm. been discussing tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, b- so before we close, if we're going to close with that, that's good. Um, do follow me on Twitter. I'm at BRBJDO. Chris is at Chris Sacknesim. Um We've been getting some emails um, in the butterfly in your mouth uh, email. That's the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. Uh, we will be addressing some of the emails that we got uh, next week, but keep sending them. Um, and with that, yeah, Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, please. No, no, that, that, that's good. And I would just add to that, David, that, that uh, we really appreciate people listening. We do want to build that sequential sort of serial community. And we're going to be providing uh, increasingly sort of detailed notes about the kinds of things that we've been talking about just as a way of, of, of furthering dialogue, furthering inquiry, helping people continue on uh, on this journey with us. So here is, uh, I think, one of, um, certainly one of my favorite poems, um, one of the greatest poems in this category of the essential quality of, of inspiration, being open to it and um, being able to to work with it in some way. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, 
and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside. Like a lamp in which his gaze now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life.